This reminds me of the feminist movement today that doesn't want to take the husband's surname, for example. So they keep their maiden name, which is actually the name of the father. So she doesn't actually escape the patriarchal authority, just moves it back one step. All the way from Bokota village in Limpopo, South Africa, we bring you Missionary Minds, where you can learn about family, church history, biblical worldview issues, and of course, missions. All from the mind of a real-world missionary of almost 20 years. And Bodipol, it's a pleasure to have you back with us for this episode. The question we have today is, should marriage conform or counterculture? Over to you, Mfundisi. First, the story. Anthony Norris Groves was one of the great missionaries in the 19th century, a gifted evangelist to the Muslims of Baghdad and father-in-law to George Mueller, though Groves is largely forgotten today. He trained to be a dentist before he became overwhelmed with missionary zeal. The problem was his wife didn't want to go. And back in those days, you couldn't try out missions for a year or two and then come back if you didn't like it. It was all or nothing. Most missionaries died early on at the field. So instead of forcing his wife Mary to go, he was patient with her. He pushed a little and then would let up. He'd push a little and she broke down. Okay, not time. Then she began to grow more and more spiritually and the Holy Spirit did the work. He pushed a little more, but again, the time was not yet there. Finally, she burst into tears and committed to give all of their possessions away and to leave for Baghdad. When I think of this story, I see how biblical the roles were in their marriage. He was the man of the house. He had the final decision, and yet he loved his wife as Christ did the church. She asked for time until she was ready, and he accommodated that. And I wonder, how should marriage look today? How should it conform to or counter our culture? I hear all the time in our particular context here among the Tongas that this is just the way we do marriage. This is how we get married, or this is how the husband deals with the wife, or this is how the wife deals with the husband. But is this a valid argument? Should we counter culture, or should we conform to culture when it comes to marriage? Well, that's what we're going to try to explore today in our subject of marriage conforming or countering culture. Brother, I think that's a wonderful story that you gave us of Antony Norris and a good example of the balance that should take place as both parties, the husband and the wife, are trying to obey God in their God-given roles. And as we approach our question today, I've heard a lot of people say about certain moral actions, especially marriage. This is how my culture does it. Um, My question is this. Is this sufficient for an action to be right and pleasing to God? Great question, and a common question. I'd answer it this way. If sola scriptura is true, that is, the Bible is the Christian's sole standard for faith and practice, and consistent, that is, Scripture agrees with Scripture, and 
if Paul teaches truth about marriage in Ephesians 5 that is contrary to the cultural norms of his day, then it can and must be concluded that the truths about marriage in Ephesians 5 that are contrary to his modern day view of marriage and our modern day view of marriage must be embraced in exclusion to popular thought. That is, if Paul's view of marriage in Ephesians 5 is countercultural, then in the spirit of Acts 5.29, Christians ought and must be willing to act counter to their own culture when it comes to biblical norms on marriage. That means we have to do two things. Number one, know what the Bible says about marriage, and then know what our culture believes about marriage and see if it lines up with Scripture. And that's what I'd like to do here today. Careful not to get caught in the thinking that somehow the Bible is outdated and irrelevant, and what we really need to know is modern culture. Like most of Paul's epistles, Ephesians is an occasional letter. That's a good theological term, and it simply means it was written with specific events or occasions in mind. It was directed to meet certain immediate, pressing needs of the church in Ephesus. It wasn't written in a vacuum. Uh, Ephesians is an immensely practical letter because it deals with real-life problems and real-life cultures within the real world, with a real local church, with real sinners converted to Christianity. So, it's very practical and speaks to contemporary needs, not only to the needs of Paul's day, but to the needs we face in our own culture. I hear you, brother, and scripture speaks foundationally, but when we actually look at our cultures and how they've developed over time, isn't culture neutral in a sense? Can't we, can't we call culture neutral? Not at all. Culture is religion externalized, if you could narrow down the definition to just two words. Saying culture is neutral is like saying religion is neutral. If religion is neutral, then you believe in universalism, or even worse, that there is no absolute truth. A popular African proverb says that a dog's crooked tail cannot be straightened. This means that when a man's heart is bad, no one can put it right. And Christians would agree, but would like to finish the sentence by saying, well, except Christ. No one can set it straight except Christ. Only Jesus can straighten a man's sinful heart. We call this regeneration. We call it justification. We call it sanctification. Sin not only affects individuals, but affects cultures. Every culture is blind in sin until the light of Scripture gives it hope. Some cultures have more light than others, which brings up the question, what was the culture like that Paul taught? Did his teachings go against the flow, or did it go with the flow? When Paul taught about marriage in his letter to the Ephesians, would it have shocked them? Or would it simply have made them smile and nod? 
I really must thank you for that explanation, brother, because as I thought about it before, in all honesty, there was the perspective that you often see in the media that cultures are some sort of independent, neutral utopia before they're visited by external cultures. But knowing that man is totally depraved, as you've expressed, and culture is an expression of man and his beliefs, it's religion externalized, it helps me to understand that uh, cultures are not indeed neutral. So before you take us to the cultures of Paul's day, take us to the town of Ephesus itself, because that's the landing spot of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, which is where... Uh, chapter 5 is contained uh, in the great definition of marriage and the roles of husband and wife. So, please, talk to us about that. Ephesus was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It wasn't just a little town. Probably had a half million people. Not as big as Rome. Not as big as Alexandria. But it was bigger than most. It had a massive theater where the silversmith Demetrius protested against Paul and his preaching in Acts 19. The theater could hold somewhere around 24,000 people, about the size of Dopsy Stadium in Soweto, home of the Swallows. Not sure who you support in soccer. Uh, I'm I'm going for the Kaiser Chiefs on this side. But it was a big stadium. It it was a well-known place, Ephesus was. And it was in a very impressive stadium, especially for 2,000 years ago. Ephesus was home to the Temple of Artemis. That would be Diana, which was one of the seven wonders of the world. So this was a massive, moving, metropolitan location. It was, at least the theater, the largest building in the world at the time, talking about not just the theater, but also the temple to Diana. Ephesus was diverse. South Africa is called Rainbow Nation because of its vast array of cultures. The first century setting to whom Paul wrote was also very complex. It was complicated. Christians from all three major cultures, that is Greek, Roman, and Jewish, would have sensed the different views of marriage among them. Well, which culture did Paul favor? Which cultural viewpoint did Paul adopt? Did he embrace holistically any particular cultural viewpoint on marriage? Did he ignore each society altogether, or make a mixture of all three. We shouldn't think that everyone in Ephesus, any more than anyone, everyone in South Africa, had the same view of marriage. He's addressing a church of believers that was at least tricultural, Roman, Greek, and Jewish. And yet there was overlap, and there was much distinction. I'm just thinking about a church in a city in Africa, let's say in Kenya, Nairobi, or Maybe in Soweto, you're going to have someone from Australia. Then you're going to have a a Zulu there. And then maybe you're going to have someone traveling from Malawi. You're going to have all these different cultural groups. That's what Paul's Day was, at least here in Ephesus. It would not be unusual for someone in Paul's Day to speak Greek. That is the language of the Hellenist. Latin, that is the language of the Romans. And Aramaic. That would be the language of the Jews. And again, even in Africa, it's not unusual for someone to speak English and Afrikaans and Zulu or Pedi or whatever it may be. This multiple 
acculturation was evident when one man could wear Greek clothing, own Roman citizenship, and worship the Jewish God. Wow, brother. I, I really hadn't considered before how many similarities there are between Ephesus and our modern-day societies. When you think of places like a Johannesburg or in New York where there's a stir-fry of different cultures going on, and it kind of got the uh, Rainbow Nation blood pumping now. And thinking about that with Johannesburg, you can have Zulus, Tongas, Shonas, Malawians, and with New York, you could have Americans, Mexicans, Asians. You could even find some Texans there. <laughs> um, and that's an amalgamation, a stir-fry of different cultures that's going on. Could you unpack for us what these three cultures looked like and how they viewed marriage? Okay, let's start with Roman culture and how they viewed family, marriage, gender roles, and what scripture says in favor or against these views. And let's remember why we're doing this. We're doing this because if we can show what the Roman audience was like that Paul was writing to, and if we can show Paul's marital counseling was contrary to what they believed, then it's an easy step to show that we should be countercultural today as well in anything that is in opposition to Scripture. Regarding marriage in Roman culture, in the early days of the Roman Empire, the, the norm for marriage was called with manus, literally with the hand. Here, the wife would come under the authority of the husband at marriage. Essentially, the authority the father used to have over his daughter was now transferred to the husband as though she was her husband's daughter. Interesting is that this didn't happen immediately. And in this form of marriage, full authority was reassigned from the father to the husband only after the wife had lived with the husband for one uninterrupted year. The word uninterrupted is crucial because some women that did not want to enter this form of marriage would avoid it by spending three nights away from her husband each year. Around the middle of the 5th century BC, an ancient woman's movement resisted this supposedly oppressive form of marriage, whereby the most common form of legal marriage became without manus. Here, the father actually retained authority over his daughter and remained her legal guardian from the day of her birth to the day of his death. The husband was not her chief authority. This gave a Roman woman more freedom that she had ever known, especially compared to the Greek women throughout most of their history. And under this kind of marriage, the woman did technically, in a sense, not belong to her husband or his family. This reminds me of the feminist movement today that doesn't want to take the husband's surname, for example. So they keep their maiden name, which is actually the name of the father. So she doesn't actually escape the patriarchal authority, just moves it back one step. It was similar in Paul's day. She tried to stay under her father's rule, but not her husband's. But she's still under some kind of male authority. Again, it's just one step back. 
There also seems to be a considerable difference between marriages in the upper class and marriages in the lower class in Roman society. Without Manus, marriages rose to popularity in part because of property issues. The father wanted to retain property gifted to his daughter should there be a divorce, something lower class spouses didn't have to worry about. Informal, lower class marriages were common within and between households and were considered husband and wife. And these allowed women within these informal marriages to flee the relationship whenever she wanted without intrusion by the state. Because the woman would almost always get custody of the children after such a divorce, or if I can just say, quote-unquote divorce, the families were often fatherless, and the mother became the head of the household. Again, very common in our era. Easy in, easy out. In our particular setting, people are quick to call a couple Nuna, that is husband, or Nsati, wife. But the Nuna and Nsati can leave at any time, and the women often are the head of the household. Hey, I thought you were married. I thought, where's, where's your Nuna or where's your Nsati? Oh, that was for a time. Easy in, easy out. So we can see that a wife in Roman society was usually under some kind of subordination. Either she was under the authority of her father, or she was under the authority of her husband. But due to certain kinds of legislation at the turn of the century, there's actually a third option for a female married Roman citizen. She could be legally liberated from both her father and her husband. That is, a freeborn woman could obtain the supposedly high honor of independence from her husband and her father if she had at least three children, and essentially if her father was deceased. That's fascinating, brother, and I can see where this is going because the Romans were thinking one way about marriage, and Paul's about to unleash the biblical view on them, which was different in some ways, but not completely. And it's fascinating how there's overlap between African culture in the, in the 21st century and Roman culture over 2,000 years ago. Uh, what were some other differences? Well, we just looked at differences regarding authority in marriage. But there are many more facets to marriage. Take polygamy, for example. Polygamy was illegal in Roman society. Great. It should be. Actually, polygamy is legal in South Africa and many other African countries, far more than any other continent. Uganda, for example, has tried for years to pass legislation to outlaw polygamy, and it's failed each time. But polygamy was illegal in Roman society. Arranged marriages were common, although appeal, compatibility, trust and affection, those were important when it came to choosing a a spouse. Childbearing was the central goal, or one of the central goals, of Roman marriage, but not the only one. Girls usually married in their mid-teens, and men usually married in their mid-twenties. Divorce in early Rome was somewhat rare, and could only be initiated by the husband, and was only allowed for very serious issues like adultery. And unlike Jewish culture, leaving a barren wife was somewhat frowned upon. But as in most cultures, morals about divorce waned, and in time, divorce became more common. 
And this is in spite of people like Caesar Augustus making adultery a criminal offense in 18 BC with the hopes of promoting legitimate children. Wives were now allowed to initiate the separation. Divorce became rampant and easy to obtain. And since the key to Roman Roman marriage was consent, the key to divorce was also Okay, so before we wrap this up, at least on the Roman cultural side of things, as to what the Bible actually says about all of these issues, we know that gender roles are so debated in our society today, even among Christians. Uh, The world is all caught up in what it even means to be male or female. And uh, Christians, we can see what's been happening with the SBC and throughout Christendom. Uh, Where was the Roman society on this issue? This is where Roman society really differs from ours today. In Roman society, the father controlled the Roman family and had almost absolute power over everyone in the home. For a time, this even included the power over life and death, though by the time Jesus came around, this authority was largely absent. The father alone was allowed to own property. He had almost complete authority over his wife, complete authority over children, slaves, workers in the household. And when his children married, they would typically begin their own household, but would still remain under the legal authority of the father until his death. Women were more sternly disciplined for immorality in Roman society. Some famous Greek and Roman philosophers and historians even suggested that the wife should overlook her husband's affairs. Uh, Now, she herself, hey, don't cheat. Uh, Be pure. Do right to your spouse. Uh, Don't seek sexual satisfaction in other men outside of your husband. But the men were almost given a free ride. It was very much a male-driven society opposed to many cultures today where the women drive society. Okay, now that we've established that as our backdrop, the question then remains, and how do we answer that? Should marriage conform to or counter culture? Carney, the answer is that marriage must conform to the scripture's teaching on marriage. If this conforms to our culture as well, great. But if not, then we absolutely must be counterculture in our approach. But our culture does it this way, we say. As a follower of Christ, this doesn't matter. Now, does Paul's teaching on marital roles in scripture, especially in Romans 5, conform to the Roman society of his day? Well, in some forms of Roman marriage, like With Manus, Ephesians 5.23 teaches that the husband is the head of the wife and leader of the home. And a wife is to submit as, as the husband submits to Christ. That's conformity. Without Manus marriages, which were the most common in Paul's day, matrimony was much different than Paul's teaching in Ephesians 5. A few ways. First of all, the women did not submit to the husbands, as verse 23 says, but instead, she submitted to her father. And then second, the father in Roman culture had far more authority over his married children than what Ephesians 5 stipulates. When Paul tells the husband 
to leave his parents. And by the way, Moses did this as well. And when Paul tells the husband to cleave to his wife, he's not speaking of a complete break of parental ties, but instead he's urging an entirely new family unit whereby primary loyalties lie now between the husband and wife and no longer between the child and the father or the child and the mother. Thus, when a Roman woman, and this is very important, Carney, this is one of the keys, when a Roman woman would have heard Ephesians 5.24, and when it was read to them, which says this, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands, she would have immediately have concluded that Paul was urging with manus marriages. That is, the marriage whereby the husband had the authority. And she could easily procure this kind of marriage by the end of the year, when she was contemplating leaving for those three days and just starting the clock all over again. Now she's going to remain with her husband the whole year, which verse 31 of Ephesians 5 commands her to do. So at this point, you're saying Paul is really being countercultural. Yes, yes. And not only on that point. Another difference is that there were double standards in Roman society, but not in Scripture. So if you're listening to this today and you're saying this is all patriarchal, all pro-man, well, yes, Scripture is patriarchal, no doubt. But this would have been difficult for men to have heard as well. Paul aims his gospel gun, his scriptural weapon, at both men and women. Men were given a long moral leash in that society, but women had to be very chaste. Per Titus 2, however, Paul says older men are to be self-controlled. Older women are to be reverent in behavior. Younger women are to love their husbands. They're to be self-controlled, pure, submissive to their own husbands. And younger men are to be self-controlled. So this is not purity just on the woman's side, it's also for the man. Again, Paul would say in places like 1 Corinthians 7 that spouses are required to give each other conjugal rights. It's not just for one side. The wife has authority over her husband's body and vice versa. And the apostle follows his teaching from Titus and Corinthians and carries it over to Ephesians 5. Each husband, verse 33, is to love his wife, singular. And each wife, singular, is to love her own husband, verse 22. Now, Carney, we haven't even arrived at Jewish and Greek culture. This is what we'll do in the next podcast. We've looked simply at Roman culture, but let this be the lesson. Brothers and sisters, follow Scripture in all things, especially in marriage. Even if it doesn't make sense, walk by faith. Peter went fishing all night and didn't catch anything. Jesus said, cast on the other side. Peter doubted, but he obeyed, and he followed God's word, and he was blessed. And today, husband, and today, wife, follow the scriptural commands on marriage. And if it be countercultural, take comfort in knowing that in Paul's day, many of the things he said 
about the rules of husband and wife was countercultural as well. What a treat, Mfundisi. To our audience, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to rate it and subscribe to keep posted with more upcoming content. Feel free to share this episode with someone who might find it interesting and submit any questions you may want answered in a future podcast. You can email those questions to paulschleyline at gmail.com. You can also visit betweentwocultures.com for other resources like this. I'm your host, Yomikani Katunga, and until next time, that's it for Missionary Minds.